It's good to be here with you guys as, uh, you know, we, we gather together and worship our Lord and, and hear from His Word. And so, uh, my name is Ryan. I'm honored to be here with you guys today. And uh, like Brad said, I'm, I'm a pastor at Harvest Christian Fellowship, and that's where I met Brad. Uh, we started doing ministry together, and, and uh, not only did, were we co-laborers, but we became brothers and became really good friends. And so... You always know if you're friends, if, if someone leaves your vicinity and you still talk to them, right? And so Brad and I, we still talk and we meet up. And so I'm just in awe of what uh, God is doing here. And it's always, it's, always, it's always good to hear the reports back to, uh, you know, what the Lord is doing here in the community. And I, I just want to say this to you guys is that um, there, there are many people... Um, well, let me say this. Th- this church was uh, planted in prayer. And what's going on here is the fruit of seeking God and, and, and desiring to do His will and His purpose. And, and so I'm just so thankful to, to hear those, those moments of tr- uh, truth and fruit that are coming from this community and just, and just what Brad is doing as the Lord is leading him here at Garden City. And so we're constantly praying for you guys. There are people that don't even come to this church that are praying that the Lord would succeed and that this church would multiply and His kingdom would be expanded and disciples would be made and fam- families and relationships uh, would be restored. And so again, that's why I'm thankful to be here, not just for the opportunity to, to teach God's Word, but just to be a part of the fruit that's happening here as well. And so when Brad asked me to come and teach, I got excited. Uh, and then he told me I was going to be closing the book of James with you guys. And, and then I got, I, I was filled with joy. Uh, James's epistle is, is one of my favorites uh, because it's both simplistic, but it's also mature in many ways. For instance, it has direct and straightforward instructions for the believer. And yet at the same time, It provokes deeper gospel maturity, both at an individual level and also at a communal level. The results from reading this God-breathed book is nothing short than life-giving, right? For in it, the Word of God teaches us how to endure through trials and temptations. It gives us wisdom for today. It reveals how we are to uh, live out true religion the dangers of wealth, and how we are to respond in faith while living in a broken world. Although many scholars have wrestled with the idea of how James concludes his letter, it seems like he kind of just tacks some things on at the end. It is quite interesting to see that the bookends of James are really directives on how we are to respond in faith when suffering through trials. In the beginning of the letter, Paul writes this, or James writes this. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. James then leads the the reader into a command praying in faith when lacking wisdom and suffering. He says this in verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. Verse 6, But let him ask in faith 
without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea and is driven and tossed by the wind. For, the person, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Comparably, at the end of the letter, James again calls the believer to respond in faith when suffering, sickness, and sin exists in the lives of those in the church. How faith responds to these things is by praying. Praying as a community. Believing. Believing in the power of prayer. And seeking. Seeking to see those restored in the faith. With that said, if you're taking note this morning, the title of today's message is Persevering Faith. Let us pray and ask the Lord's blessing again on our time. Lord, we thank You for this morning. Lord, we thank You that we are called Your church. We're called to be a light into this world. Lord, we're, we're called to be truth finders and seekers and people who walk in this light and seek truth out and walk according to Your will. And so, Lord, this morning as we uh, read Your Word and study it and apply it, we ask that Your Spirit would help us, lead us, and change us. That, Lord, as we walk out of this place today, that we would be more like You in Your likeness, in Your goodness. So help us, Lord, Be with us now. Encourage us. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So my first point for us this morning is faith produces a praying church. Faith produces a praying church. Verse 13, Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. In this set of verses, James appears to readdress two of his main themes within the letter, suffering and joy. In both cases, he calls the believer to respond in faith by praying and praising. These two responses are active instructions for the believer that their faith would compel them to pray, not as a last-minute resolve, but in an effectual way to deal with trials, blessings, and even sin. The reason why we should pray when these, happen, when these things happen in our life is because, because God inclines His ear to His people. He is near to the brokenhearted, and He gives us real, true victory in the casualties of a broken world. Jesus Himself told His disciples that in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for He has overcome the world. Looking at our passage, Paul asks three questions. The first one, Paul says, are any of you suffering? Another literal translation is, is anyone suffering among you? 
Some commentators have picked up on this and have suggested that Paul is not exhorting the believer to personal private prayer, but to communal prayer. The context is a church with people who belong to one another. I think it is fitting for one of the ways we must deal with trials and temptations and even sin is finding comfort and healing and accountability within our community. Now, don't get me wrong. We are called to private prayer. But we are also called to pray with one another. This call to corporate prayer is continual. And it's vital for the health of a believer and his or her community. Simply put, a faith community is a praying community. Like I said at the beginning, this church, you being here, us being here together, started with prayer. Us continuing to meet here and growing together will be in prayer. To be quite honest, prayer, both corporately and privately, is one of the greatest resources God has given His people. But in many ways, it has become the most neglected. C.H. Spurgeon said this, and he said it well, it's a reading age. It's a preaching age. It's a working age. But it is not a praying age. Although this may be true in some churches, I'm thankful that the Scriptures call this church to be a praying church. That we should be desperately seeking the throne of God for all of life's problems. After Paul directs people who are suffering to pray, he then says a second question. He asks a second question. Is any of you happy? Let him sing songs or hymns of praise. Now, I think this is quite fascinating that as he calls both sides of the spectrum, that he, he in these two circumstances, they're, they're completely opposite, right? He's talking about two very different things. One who is suffering greatly and one who has not suffered anything. These are drastically different, but I think it's necessary for those who find themselves without trial to be praying, giving praise to God for the grace that He's given and protected them with. Therefore, if you're in a season of happiness and blessedness and everything is just alright, you should thank God in your prayers. Don't take God's blessing for granted. Since many of you, uh, since many people are not fortunate in suffering, right? Because there, there's people out there who suffer greatly. And so for us who maybe don't suffer or are in a season of not suffering, we should give praise to God. In verse 14, James brings up a third question. He says, Are any of you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. From this reading, we realize this type of sickness is not limited to physical illness, but includes other illnesses, right? For instance, mental or emotional or even spiritual sicknesses. 
James's instruction is for those who are feeling this way to humble themselves, because it does take humility to ask people for prayer, asking the leaders to come and pray for them, being anointed with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, some of you are probably wondering, what's with the oil, right? We don't really see a lot of this anointing with oil, especially in the New Testament. Uh, does oil have some type of superpower? And so the short answer is no. There's no superpower in the oil. It's not medicinal, nor is it, nor is it sacramental, as some hold to, but it's symbolic. What it does is it brings special attention to the needs and the cares of the individual. Most importantly, when we read the passage, we must see that the emphasis is not on the oil, but on the prayer, and specifically the prayer of faith. For the Word of God says this in 15, such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sin, you will be forgiven. Personally, my heart is filled with the presence of God when I witness a church body coming together and praying for one another in this way. We do it at my church, and, and hopefully uh, you guys will experience it here as well. But it's really a huge blessing, and it's a sobering reality to see how many people are really suffering and going through trials in their community how they desperately need others to pray for them, but sometimes they don't know how to ask. Even more so, I believe that God honors His Word. For when we obey God, believing in faith, that He will do even more than what we ask, we start trusting God more with our prayers. We fearlessly and confidently enter into His throne room interceding for our family members and shamelessly sharing our hurting hearts with others around us, knowing that there's grace and mercy at the altar. Now notice how we understand prayer. Praying in itself is not a means to an end. We don't pray to feel good. We don't pray for psychological reasons. We pray because it's a dependency on the one who's capable to heal and to forgive sin. The Lord is the one who is able to heal those who are dealing with troubles. Therefore, we are to find a balance in completely expecting nothing, if it's not God's will, but actually, even on the other side, expecting God to do amazing things in those who seek Him. Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. With that said, today we are going to be doers of God's Word as James calls it, right? And we're going to fearlessly pray for one another. Therefore, if you are sick, or if you're suffering in a trial, or even if you've had a sin, a secret sin, that you need to be prayed for, Pastor Brad and his team will be here after this message calling people up to pray for them as they need. Yes, even with oil. I hope you won't pass up this opportunity for God desires His church 
to be a praying church. That we should pray together about all things, knowing that He is gracious and merciful, and He is sovereignly leading us in His perfect will. This brings us to our second point this morning. Faith believes in the power of praying. Now, to be honest with you, when I was reading this passage, it was, hard to, it was really hard for me to find the, the actual meaning of this passage. And that's okay. I could be honest with you guys. It's not, it's not always so clear of how we are to interpret and to read and apply the passage. But it's interesting of how James writes it out. He says, Confession or confess your sins to each other and pray for one another and, and you will be healed. The earnest prayers of a righteous person has great power, which is key, and produces wonderful results. Then he gets into an illustration. He says, Elijah was a man as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. That's the key to in the interpretation of what James is saying. We must go and look at Elijah's account. At this point, James has taught us that in all aspects of life, whether suffering or being joyful, that we are to be a praying and praising community. And now, he starts to give us clarity that there is power in prayer, especially when we confess our sins to one another. It is interesting for us to see that communal confession of sin is important and necessary for the life and health of any spiritual family. James's usage of the world or the word healing can mean both spiritual and physical. In this context, we would assume that he's talking about the spiritual well-being of the believer in the church. With that said, for the believer, church is not to be treated as an activity to attend, but a family meeting to commit to. I say this because people who attend activity, activities will only stay as long as it's fun. But family members stick it out through thick and thin. If we commit ourselves to being a family, that means we look out for one another and our well-being. Because we know that we need each other to be physically and spiritually healthy. In order for this to happen, we have to let people get close to us, don't we? One of the biggest downfalls of church is that we kind of come into church, we hang out for service, and then we leave right after church. And we never let anyone get close to us. One of the most effective ways to do this is letting people get close to us is by mutual confession. As one commentator said, God intended prayer to bring the body together so that when one person falls ill, physically or spiritually, others in the community may intervene redemptively. With that said, a praying community is a confessing community. We need each other. A famous theologian, pastor, and author by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote a book called Life Together. It's literally probably like 96 pages or something like that. With, within this short read, he points out some of the benefits to mutual confession within a faith community. 
one of its primary points is that the confessing, the confessing of sin uh, with one another breaks down the walls of isolation, right? Which really sin demands at times. And maybe some of you have felt that before when, when you're sinning or habitually sinning or continuing to give in sin, you start isolating yourself from community, right? You stop reading God's Word. You stop praying with others. You stop reaching out to people. And finally, you find yourself alone. But when we confess, the grace of God flows through the life of the body of believers. Because there's grace and mercy for those who seek God. Secondly, he points out that confession cuts down pride and helps us put to death the old person. In doing so, we find new life and we find a new community. This is amazing. Therefore, the Bible calls us to bear each other's sins or our burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. When we carry each other's burdens, we invite brothers and sisters to hold us accountable, bringing healthy proximity with those who love us and care for our souls. Do you guys know that you guys belong to each other? That you guys are soul carers? to one another, that you guys love each other in so much that you will come alongside them and even carry their own burdens? Because let me be honest, when, when, you know, when we are, say someone is, one of our friends is going through something in their life and they call us and they want to talk and they want to hear from us and they want our wisdom in the situation, there's a little bit of an exchanging of a burden there, right? Well, if you care for them if you don't just write them off, but if you care for that person, it's almost as your heart is touched by the same burden that they're going through. That you're like, I'm so sorry that you're going through this. How can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I point you to Jesus when you need to hear the gospel? A confessing community is powerful because confession leads us to pray to the one who's all-powerful. When we pray to the one who is all-powerful, we find the grace and the power of the cross. Therefore, prayer is not only our own, it's not about our own spiritual power, but having faith in God's sovereign power. Sadly, we don't always think this way about prayer. In fact, we look at the text and it says. The only prayers that are powerful are the ones that come from the righteous person, right? But if we follow the text, if we continue to follow the text, James gives us a clue. James makes his point more clear by illustrating it through Elijah's account. Look again at what the scriptures say about Elijah. He was a man just like us, but God answered his prayer. Even though we think Elijah as we think of him as one of the greatest prophets of old, James does not mention his unique role here, and he does that with intention. But instead, he likens him to a fallen human being just as we are. This means that his capabilities were not beyond ours. But what can we learn from Elijah's story? Well, the text tells us this. 
that he prayed earnestly, or another translation, fervently, that no rain would fall, none f- and, and none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain, and the earth began to yield its crops. Now, for all you Old Testament scholars out there, you should find this statement from James quite interesting or unusual, since the count that uh, of Elijah in 1 Kings 17 and 18 never mention or make obvious that Elijah ever prayed. One commentator said that this could be because James had extra biblical literary or literature and, and through his teaching or his letter that he authenticated the historical account with his apostolic ministry, right? Regardless, what we do assume is that Elijah was a man of prayer, right? Since he had a special relationship with God and God spoke to him in many ways. Said that God told Elijah that there would be no rain and it was so, Later on, in 1 Kings 18, God told him that rain would be coming again. He told Elijah that rain would be coming again. And in verse 42, it says that Elijah went up to Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his faith between his knees. It was a posture of prayer. After doing this seven times, God's promise for rain was finally fulfilled. What we can learn from Elijah's prayer life is first that he always prayed according to God's promises. He never demanded his own way, but he knew that the word of the Lord, he knew the word of the Lord and prayed according to what God had said, trusting God would not go back on his word. Second, Elijah was considered a righteous man and his prayers were affected because Not of himself, but because of his faith. His faith was not in himself, but rather his faith was in the power of God. He knew who he was praying to. He believed God at his word. And he trusted in the power of God to do the impossible. Therefore, we too can pray just as Elijah did. By knowing God's word, not trusting in our own ability but rather believing in the one who's, who has made us righteous through the death and resurrection of Christ. Understanding prayer this way allows us to pray fervently, expectantly, passionately for those who are sick and suffering in the family of God. For the driving force behind our prayers is faith in God. For we know there is power in the name of Christ. Coming to our final word, James makes the point, faith promises perseverance for the prodigals. Faith gives a promise to the prodigal. Verse 19 says this, My dear brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. At times, 
When the believer faces trials of various kinds, the temptation that arises is walking away from the Lord. Is it not? The devil comes in and says, you're not good enough. They'll never love you. What you did is shameful. You should stop walking that way and walk this way. It is interesting to mention that the, by the reading of the text, James doesn't seem to be talking about full apostasy here. And let me say this. Apostasy is someone who fully renounces their faith, right? But here in the text, it seems that James is alluding to that the person who is strayed away is still in the body of believers. It appears that he's suggesting that they're still in the community and that if they would hear words of correction, they would turn back to truth. This is not too far-fetched. Since we are prone to wander in our ways and in our thoughts towards God. Many times people come into church seeking if God is real. Sometimes people sit in the pews and in the chairs wondering if this is really worth living for. Sometimes they've wandered from the truth they once believed in. Again, the Word of God encourages us to have meaningful relationships, right? That we would see each other and want to correct each other so that there would be restoration possible. This connection does well with the previous set of verses by stating that a confessing community will be a correcting community. A confessing community, those who confess sin to one another, will also be a correcting community. If we walk in light as He is in the light, and we confess our sins to one another as Scriptures call us to do, and we carry each other's burdens, we will also be willing to give and receive correction. And that correction is for the purpose to guide us back to the way of righteousness. The question we must ask is, what has the wanderer strayed from? What is the wanderer strayed from? What, what is this thing that they are disbelieving in or they're struggling in? Well, the text tells us truth. They've wandered from truth. From this statement, we understand that James believes there is an objective truth that keeps the believer walking in true faith and having fellowship with one another. The person who has wandered from truth has strayed from living in the light of Christ and rather walks in darkness. According to what we have learned in James's letter, this also includes speech and action. It's not so much a theological error. He's talking about, in his context, those who speak things in judgment and those who say they're Christian, but they don't act Christian. And they treat even other Christians wrong. Because of this, we, we are Christians who must be aware of our own behaviors. Right? I love what James says. I, I think it's in chapter 2. He says that the Word of God is a mirror. Right? And when you look in the mirror, you see a self-evaluating picture of who you are and your sins and your imperfections and all those things. But also, the Word of God does something else. 
It helps us see other people's uh, conditions as well. We must look out for one another with the desire to see each other grow in Christ. We do this not in a prideful way or a hypocritical way, but we do in a way that promotes grace, walking in light and being restored in truth. Since the Word of God says the faithful brother or sister who, keep, who helps restore someone, uh, someone who has sinned and strayed away will save their souls from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is a blessing both for the sinner and also for the reclaimer. For the sinner, they will be forgiven. They will, give, they will be given assurance of faith and they'll be restored back on the right path. For the reclaimer, they will be reminded that they too are sinners in need of God's grace and his community. These final words from James are a call for the church to pursue sinners and aim to win them back to Christ. I'll even say this, James has in mind even those who are not in the faith. That the church should go after even the non-believer the one who even sits in the community of the saints, but is not themselves a saint. This, too, is how we respond in faith to those who have strayed away and are in need of loving correction. For in doing so, we respond to trials in faith, asking from wisdom from above, using our words to give life, showing mercy, when we have received mercy and loving others by being a doer of God's word. Today, if you have wandered or if you are feeling like wandering away, or maybe you came up here and you're like, I'm going to give God this last chance. God is calling you to be restored in his grace this very hour. For the gospel message is a message about reconciliation. That reconciliation is to God through Christ. For God the Father sent His beloved Son on a mission to save and restore sinners. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, the word says that, that for our sake, Jesus took the place of sin, even though he himself was sinless, so that in him those who believe might become the righteousness of God. But just a few verses before that, in verse 19, it says that the Word of God says that in Christ, God was recon reconciling the world to himself. The message of the cross is reconciliation. The message of James is be reconciled to God. This is an amazing truth that is at work in the cross, that we have received reconciliation with God through Christ. See, Christ's suffering brought victory over the grave. Christ's resurrection gave us new life that we no longer have to walk the way we once did before, but now we have the liberty, we have the freedom to live according to God's Word. Therefore, 
Let us be restored to God. Let us be restored in a right relationship with Him. This morning, the mercy of God is new. Be reconciled to God. Please don't leave this place without talking to either Brad or one of the team members if you feel like walking away from the Lord. As we close, I want to encourage you as a faith community to believe in the power of prayer, to confess your sins to one another, to be vulnerable to one another and allow the power of God to manifest itself in what you're doing here as a faith community. As we close, I'm going to pray for you guys that you guys would be encouraged, that you guys would be strengthened in the Lord, and that you guys would go out from this place and that you would do God's work in this community. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, God. We thank you for this morning as you spoke to us, Lord. And uh, God, I pray for these people here, Lord, as they come here to seek you and to hear from you, God. I pray that your spirit would continue to speak to them, Lord, that they would believe in, in the power of prayer and confession, Lord, that they would be a community who has faith in you, Lord, um, who has committed themselves to being here, Lord. Uh, Lord, if there's anyone here who feels like straying away, who feels like life's issues and struggles are too big for you, Lord, I pray that you would remind them of who you are, that you're an awesome God who is mighty in all his ways, who is powerful to forgive, to save sinners. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. And now, help us respond in worship. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.